critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Hello, I'm Jason Bates with my 11FS colleagues, David Breer and Simon Taylor. We'd like to welcome you to Fintech Insider Insights. We're in level 39, the heart of fintech. Today, we've got some great guests to talk about something that actually has a bit of a reputation for putting most people to sleep. I don't think that's going to be the case today. Yes, today we're talking about core banking and we've got Mark Warwick, uh, Director of Creative and Design at Thought Machine. Hey. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. We've got Ben Robinson, Chief Strategy Officer at Temenos. Thanks, thanks for having me again. My pleasure. And we've got Connor Fennelly, CEO of Leveris. Thank you, very nice to be here. So, on with the show. So gentlemen, Welcome. Core banking. I think the majority of the audience is going to say, what am I listening to? And where is the skip button to move me on to the next (laughs) podcast? You have about 25 seconds before they do that. What's core banking and why should people listen? People should listen because um, core banking, it can combine art and technology together. It can make customer experiences absolutely incredible if you get it right. If you don't, then the things that people use, feel, and touch on the, on the streets, it's just going to be no good. So I won't try to define core banking because I don't think that's going to get your listeners very excited. But I would say that um, we recently wrote a piece saying, what are the 10 prerequisites for a truly digital bank? And we believe there's at least five of those you can't achieve unless you've got a state-of-the-art core banking system. So core banking, there's a number of different perspectives on it. One of them is the bank's perspective on core banking, of course. Uh, That translates into a number of things. One of them would be cost income ratios, the ability to service customers, uh, and things like that. But from a consumer perspective, which is probably the most important perspective, it relates to a number of very important things. It's how engaging your bank can be, how pleasurable this thing could be to deal with in the future, or how annoying it is today. And actually, to respect how difficult it is for the bankers to change that for you. So most of the banks that we know and love along the high street here and abroad would say that they're delivering you know, great digital banking, yet they have ancient cores made up of arguably thousands of systems. So does that not argue against the case you've just made? So I'm familiar with your positioning that you know digital banking is one percent down. I don't know if it's one percent down or ten percent down or five percent down, but it's it's a long way off realization. And you know some of the things you can't do if you have a you know a batch based legacy system. I mean you can't give people a complete view of all their of all their records, all their holdings, all their account information. You can't deliver instant fulfillment. Um, you can't offer really truly personalized contextual um, offers and information and content. So there's a ton of stuff you can't do that you need to do if you really want to give a wonderful digital experience, unless you change core systems. You know, I, I truly believe that 
we should be able to have a core system that makes boring things like pensions attractive to 20-year-olds. We should make things like mortgages something which people want to gauge with daily. We shouldn't be afraid of starting to try and combine role-playing games with savings. There's no reason why we shouldn't do that. The reason why we don't do it is because the core banking solutions, like you've just said, just don't enable you to do it. You can't do it. Yeah, I think there's a very interesting perspective on this. I don't think it's so much a case that banks are failing their customers so much as it is a case that technology is actually failing banking. I think it's a very important distinction. So at the end of this, what we believe is that bankers know very well what constitutes a very good customer experience, as indeed do the customers, but it's the inability for them to get there that's important, and that's what we're trying to address. Mm. It's an interesting one, isn't it? You, you sort of find there's a, a probably a, a tendency more to sort of cover the back end than fix it at the moment in banking, which uh, is, a, is definitely a problem. But yeah. you know, having spent quite a lot of time working in banking, definitely yeah. the, the core system within those incumbent organizations has definitely been an inhibitor of, yeah. of doing it. But almost, I guess, the problem there is, is not only the core systems limitations of what you can do from a, a customer experience perspective, but actually how to fix that as well. You know, arguably, the, the problem's not where you are, it's how to get to where you want to, isn't it? There hasn't really been much demand from customers saying, hey, I really want this experience. You know, it hasn't quite turned that corner yet. You know, if you look at computing where we had the beige boxes and all of this sort of stuff, and then the, the G3 came out and was like, oh, wow, an emotional computer. I love this. That hasn't happened in banking yet. And until, you know, we do something radical and then customers go, well, I expect it to be like that. Why would you invest to try and really change something like that? Well, but I, I think that's an interesting point. And actually, the, my argument, I guess, to that is about banks are not only drowning in inefficiencies around the experience, but actually from a cost efficiencies perspective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look at the the sort of typical costs that actually you're seeing a, a bank creating uh, even the most basic of, of current account service and, and actually putting that out into the market, then, you know, that just isn't a sustainable model if it's costing you a 160, 170 pounds to maintain a, a current account for a year. So, you know, even if all of the, the kind of bankers listening, even if you did nothing else, if you made the experience that you're out there today 90% more efficient in terms of the cost efficiencies within the operation, then I'm pretty sure everybody would be quite happy within your organization. It always struck me as really strange, that one, actually. That there is this giant fear of doing core transformation, and I guess it's because it's been hard to do and you've tried to do it before and you might have failed. But actually, when everything is about cutting costs for the big banks at the moment, like everything is about cutting quick costs, and the big taboo is that change of core banking system. It's like, well, eventually you're going to have to get off the planet. So, And if you want those cost cutting, there's only so many branches you can close, which is cutting your nose off to spite your face. Like, you've got to make that change, surely. Yeah, so, so it's Michael just, Jackson. Just, just going to throw in a couple of statistics here. Right? So um, obviously this is hugely self-promoting, but banks today, they spend roughly 78% or something of IT spending on, on maintaining old systems. The average terminal customer is forty-four percent, right? So I think you can make, as you said, right? I mean, you know, how sustainable is it to keep removing people, to keep removing, or maybe people is sustainable, but anyway, to keep closing branches. And I mean, there, there comes a point where you have to address IT if you really want to see a step, step change in in IT spending. The other point I would make, coming back to the, this question of like, how difficult is it to replace a core banking system? So. Certainly, I mean, I've been working at Terminals for nine and a half years now, and in that period, you know, I've seen huge change because. You know, we, we our value proposition sort of ten years ago was you know you've got to replace all your hardware, you've got to move to a Unix environment, you've got to do a big bang replacement, and there are no systems integrators operating in this Sounds space. Fun. 
And so, you know, I think we've come a long way in terms of competitizing the systems, uh, so allowing for progressive renovation. And obviously, this, all these systems integrators are in this space now. Uh, we can run on any hardware. So I think we've come a long way. And I think maybe we'll come back to this. But one way that we see more and more of our customers and more and more banks implementing this is to, sh to start a new bank with a new brand, new people, and completely new systems. And that's a very easy way to start with a sort of minimal viable product and then build from there. So, Two points I wanted to make on that. First point is that the nature of this problem is systemic. It's not symptomatic. So the system is the core bank. And banks, I don't think it's a price sensitivity issue. They're not afraid to invest in their technology. No, in fact, they invest massively in technology. The real issue is that it's not effective spend. And the real problem facing most CEOs or boardrooms in banks is the risk associated with making the move. Banks are not monolithic systems. They're made up of hundreds of subsystems, right? You want to make a change in those subsystems, you've got to regress your testing through the entire environment. The latency on a legacy environment to bring something new to bear, that's the reason why 80% of your cost is in run the bank and only 20% could be in change. In fact, that's probably not even accurate. It's probably more exaggerated than that. If you want to make a change, you've got to build an architecturally superior system. We haven't reached a point where that's pervasive today, and that's what needs to happen. Like you say, it's, it's slightly perverse that agile working methodologies have, have hit across pretty much all of the realms of banking rather yeah. than actually in the place where it's the most, most benefit would actually be gained from doing it. And the important thing is it's not that difficult because some of this abstraction you have to do isn't just technological either. It's business modeling. Mm. So what are the things that a new bank requires in order to be perfectly functional? Well, there's a number of things you've got to do. First of all, you've got to clean up your stack so you can modify easily. So cost to change, you can innovate rapidly. That we can do. We know architectures can do that because non-bank architectures can do that. And the associated cost income ratios of organisms that look very like banks are vastly superior. Banks are operating in the 80s and 90s. Many of the others are operating in the 50s and 60s. That's a pretty easy argument to make. But the real problem is that there's more to it than that. For example, single view of customer. You want to serve a customer correctly, you've got to organize your data correctly. That's as much a business modeling factor as it is anything else. You know, for example, you're talking about open architecture systems and plugging people in. No point in plugging them in if you're not homogenizing your data correctly. Mm -hmm. So this is truly to create this system. There's a couple of abstracting factors and call it, you know, you've got to address the cost factors. You've got to address the ability to innovate quickly, rapid innovation cycles. You also got to address your data factors. There are a myriad of things you've got to get right from a fundamental architectural perspective, I would say 80% of which are business modeling and the rest is technology. So is core systems transformation a fantasy? Is it something that sounds good, it would be great to be able to do, but in the end, who has done it? So I think it's an inevitability. So the question is, who solves this? And it, maybe it's a number of companies or a transition, but it is a certain, it's an inevitability. This has to change. And it has been solved in other industries. So I, it may be an incremental process or somebody may actually make a drop. In my opinion, it's in the mail. It's going to come. If banks want to make a step change in their, in their cost base, and I think, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this discussion later, but the world of open banking is forcing architectural change because you have to have asynchronous order capture from, from processing, which is one big architectural change which, which banks will have to implement. So um, to come back to the architectural point. So it's, it's inevitable for a number of reasons, but banks will have to move to the lowest cost of processing. That's, it, that's essential if they're going to be able to match the newcomers, uh, new entrants into the marketplace. So I think it's absolutely inevitable. And um, I mean, I, when I joined Temenos, I, I was an equity analyst and it was one of the companies that I covered. And I joined Temenos at that point because I thought we were about to see a step change. I thought all banks were about to start replacing their core banking systems. Fast forward nine and a half years, it kind of hasn't happened, but, I, but it is happening. And looking at the Temenos experience, 
you know, we've we've started to see large domestic retail banks replacing core banking systems. And this was the, the part that they never wanted to touch because it's such high volumes, it's so many uh, customer numbers. Um, and so therefore, you know, the risk is is multiplied. But we are starting to see it. So Nordera doing it, Bank of Ireland are doing it. And I think we are now starting to see the proof points that not only is it inevitable, but banks are starting to realize that it's inevitable. I think, um, you know, a, another thing that I've, I find interesting is just the the point that people make around it's open heart surgery. You know, you, it's really hard to do. And um, all of the subsystems and the uh, the ETL layers, which then extract, transform load layers, which go from one system to another system, and this, this, and this. And, you know, I, I always feel like it's like an analogy of if you go to other industries, they replace their platforms constantly because yeah. of there's so much pressure. And in this world, it feels like, hey, you know, we had VHS video, and now let's do a extract, transform, load to Laserdisc player. Let's do an extract, transform, load to DVD, and then to Blu-ray. And now we're going to put that on... Um, Netflix. Sorry, did you want me to go back and change the, the the video bit of that? That's really hard for us to do. And so to do it, you just have to kind of go, right, you've got to build in parallel and gradually start swapping these yeah. things out and change the airplane engines as you're flying, you know, and it, it's such a hard concept to get to, isn't it? The difference between many industries and the banking industry is the banking is a highly regulated industry and the cost of failure is extremely high. So if you experience data loss post new system in place, you can pretty much take the word bank off your name. That's not a risk that most bankers are willing to undertake. So in order to do this, you need an intelligent, systematic and well thought out approach as to how you're going to do that shift. And I've been on the sharp end of implementing four banks from completely the other perspective and you understand the risk for, that's why I come back to the point that the real risk for bankers and for the decision makers, and it isn't capital risk at all. It's, will this thing fly once yeah. we do? And, and you don't get to test it necessarily, especially in a legacy environment. Why? A legacy environment is a core system with a whole bunch of stuff stapled onto it, right? You can have 700 or 1,000 subsystems in there which means you don't have a test environment. So in normal services-oriented architecture, modern system, you've got a test environment. You can actually you know, run regression testing. You can make sure that things work for this through multiple environments before you launch, not in the modern banking system, right? So you do take on a lot of risk. You don't know what little piece of the system is going to take you down. I agree. You know, I understand. Huge, huge issue with that. However, in another industry, I spent five years as a weapons engineer in the Royal Navy. We, random point, I'm a bit of a pacifist now, but um, <laughs> I, at the time it was really, really important to me. And the combat system highways on warships are highly regulated. Mm -hmm. Of course they are. Mm -hmm. But they get swapped out and they have to get swapped out. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that I can believe which is the important, you know, reason why that moves so quickly is because there is such a pressure on them, not just from regulation, but from the ability to keep up with the market as such. From a CEO's perspective, if you look at the data, two out of three of all major bank transformations fail at switchover, right? Mm. Only one third actually succeeds. So the metrics are there. This is a very dangerous undertaking. And what you'll see is when they put a new core system in place, they'll end up using a fraction of it. Maybe a current account gets launched or something like that. And there's a real reason for that. And the reason is business model, superseded by architecture and a couple of other things. So you have to solve this problem right systemically in order to have the transformative approach we need. I concur with exactly what you said. And I think that's why um, so many of the discussions we have around the, where, we're, where we're convincing um, banks to change systems are less. Obviously, we do help them with business cases and justifying the investment. And so, But so much of the time is spent around the migration and how that will happen. And 
so happily our success rates are dramatically better than that. But so I think the, the model we see more and more is clearly Big Bang is super risky and very few banks now do a Big Bang replacement. The model we see more and more, whether it's whether it's actually starting a new bank, which you know we've seen with Pepper in Israel and Equitable Bank, and is a model that you, you build and migrate. So you, you you know by line of business, by geography, by horizontal, um, and that seems to be something where you can really reduce uh, the risk and also massively speed up the time to value. And um, so I think I think we'll, be, we'll observe that all core banking replacements are, are built and migrate over time. So I guess to back us out a bit, you know, we've got these these thousands of systems running big banks with tens of millions of customers. If one of the guys in the skyscrapers around us gave you a call and said, great, you know, we've seen these new challenges, we've seen fintech, we know we have to change, we're g- digitizing and that it is taking us away, it is saving us costs, it's like helping us along, but we know there's a wall coming beyond which we're just going to need to, to upgrade the entire thing. What's your advice? What do they do? How do you, where do they start? So very simply, what I would say is, first of all, you need to have a view of what the bank of the future looks like, where you want to go. Without that, you don't have a roadmap for any direction. So that's part of that is putting yourself in the consumer right position and saying, how do we provide engagement levels? How do we advocate for go- those consumers? How do we become a non-commodity money storage organism right, and do mm-hmm. things that are valuable? That's the first thing. Then the second thing is... There's a systematic, and I actually concur entirely with the phased approach or mirroring stuff on there. You don't have to take a risk at one particular time. You can actually put systems in place that solve segments of your business, like, for instance, a student segmentation or a logical business segmentation of some description. Run that and test that in parallel to what you have. And then systematically migrate or age out what you already have. Because you have to age out not just your core systems, but banks in the end of the day. Core banking is not a profitable endeavor, right? It's an exercise to drive cheap deposit capital, which in turn is lend. It's the lending business that drives banking, right? So both of those things need to be on platform and very well integrated. So yeah, I 100% agree that it's about doing it in a phased approach. Um, you know, and, and taking you know concepts of minimal byproducts, and um, so exactly start with something like a simple deposits uh, product and gradually build more and more um, capability, more and more products, more and more lines of business on the new system. The only th- other thing that I would recommend is to first of all simplify. So to simplify the number of products you have to, to, and to try to do some exercise in, in, in cleaning up the data before engaging in a core banking replacement. Because as, as I think you said earlier on, which is the systems, the legacy systems are made up of hundreds of different applications, hundreds of re- duplicate, uh, sets of duplicate data, normally built around products, not, not, not human beings. And so to do some level of data tidy up as well as simplifying the product set is a very good first step before you do a phase migration. And definitely most people don't do that. Uh, you know, no. definitely that would be a recommendation. But and I think this is one of the major problems in this space is actually it is seen as a transformation, but actually the features and functionality that you actually get from day one are not really transformational. You know, most people no. just migrate the the bad data that they have without any sort of element of, of, of cleansing and the products that they have without really any form of, of kind of significant advancements around it. So, you know, I think that's a real smart point. Uh, but I almost want to... to check that I'm not dreaming here because it sounds like we're talking very much like startup world. You're talking about understand your customers. What is it that you want to provide? What is the business you want to be? You're talking about segmenting and finding a customer base to to test this with. You're talking about MVP and products. Do you really think that, that bank CEOs and execs have a vision for that and who they could be and what they could do in the in the digital world? 
I wouldn't be presumptuous enough to think that some of them didn't have that necessarily, but I haven't come across too many who have. <laughs> However, there's a difference between, I think it's very important how you get started, because that's how these things work, right? If you can actually demonstrate a model that's viable in small, it's very easy to observe, and then it can grow from there. So the question is, who are your initial candidates when you do something like that? So that's where we would start. You know, I really, really focus in on, on that way of doing things. I think the first thing is to go, be a challenger yourself. What is the thing you're going to challenge in the market with? Think of it really in that in that in that way, and look at all of the other challenger banks out there, and go right. We're going to hit mortgages. We're going to do it in this way, and then full stack, brand new product going out to market on the full stack. You know the ledger results go back into the main ledger. Fine, and then you start doing the phased approach that we're talking about. But try not to just go. Actually, I'm not going to worry about the proposition. I'm going to start thinking about how to migrate my core banking. It's like start getting revenue in from something as revenue generating as mortgages and hit that. But I think that's coming back to the point of why, as a you know, if I'm a bank CEO sitting there, why would I be doing this? So yeah. if you're doing it to sort of dramatically sort of shave cost out of your organisation, your approach to doing it would be very different. You know, very similar to what we've seen in terms of the investment in digital banking generally. Most people are investing in core banking to take money out of their organization, not move their organization forward. And for me, that's a, a massive failing in this space. I think one very important thing to point out here, it's just an observation, but, um, is that this isn't going to be solved by a two or three person startup, a, you know, a fintech, an app. That's not what this is. This is a systemic problem, which re requires a systemic approach with a fundamental underpinning business model that's all worked out, right? If you don't start from that point and then have the vision and then pursue this, you're not going to get anywhere. So, you know, you have to be equipped to do it. You have to build it for it to work. One thing I want to pick up on was, which is, now, one of the things, because obviously I'm in charge of marketing, or at least I was, um, at Temenos, and one of the things that we've we've struggled with is that, and I don't, I don't necessarily think it's that ba uh, bank CEOs are, are not tech-savvy, although that is probably a contributory factor, which is, you know, all the problems that banks have, right, so whether it's, you know, their, their costs are too high or too slow to launch new products, whatever, making that connection with a core banking replacement is a tough thing to do, and... Um, Mm -hmm. But I was just say, wouldn't banks do undertake core banking replacements where it's not kind of the regulators forcing them or the guy who actually wrote the system is retired or whatever? Like, so Nordea's the biggest deal we've ever had. And, and when I spoke to the CEO, he said we're replacing our system for three reasons. He said, number one, because um, we see how the look to book is changing. And um, there's no way that our previous system would scale, you know, because we might go to 100 to 1. People querying their balances 100 times before they make a, a transaction. So we something super scalable and super cheap, uh, runs on cheap hardware, et cetera. Second reason is that it has to be real-time because we have to deliver a real-time experience. And the third reason, which was the most interesting, and, and, and I think it means that banks actually don't need necessarily to know what the future looks like, is mm -hmm. he said, you know, we just need to give ourselves options. We just need to have a very flexible system because, frankly, you know, I'm, I don't know what banking looks like in 10 years' time. Probably none of us do, right? So, so to, to introduce a huge amount of flexibility is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a good thing and doesn't necessarily require the bank to have a really, really compelling vision of what banking looks like in 10 years. I, I think generally building agility into the entirety of your architecture is just like a no-brainer, yeah. isn't it? You know, having that space in there. But Mark, I think to your point earlier on, where I think the problem that we're seeing is, is banks are kind of in the space at the moment where like the whole building is on fire 
and they're trying to figure out how they exist in sort of a couple of years time in terms of the the sort of changes around margins and everything that's going on so you know to your point around open heart surgery it's while the doctor's kind of running down the street trying to perform open heart surgery mm. at the same time it's you know it's quite a difficult daunting task for these guys to go through so i think a mix of long-term and short-term objectives and definitely long-term and short-term benefits means most ceos are probably in the mindset that it's the next guy's problem and not their problem um, and i kind of think that's probably a major inhibitor for all of you guys to you know really get these people to be motivated to make the change today mm-hmm. so i've yet to come across a ceo who's who's come up with three or four reasons as to why they want to change your bank there is no such thing as elective open heart surgery right <laughs> usually it's 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 a massive problem that you're trying to deal with it's an excruciating problem that you deal with and what I, what i would say is what is really happening here there are about 35,000 just retail banks globally and of those last year there were about 150 transformations right if you run the math on that that's equivalent to one tr- bank transforming system every 227 years and then mckinsey did a little bit of research and we know out of those 35,000 banks roughly 11,000 of them actually actively want to change their systems so there's huge massive pent up demand in this area lots can, of CEOs I think I can see people it. salivating at the table at this <laughs> <point>. <laughs> <laughs> But the point is, it's an extremely difficult thing to address, and the systems aren't there to do it yet. Um, But I guess back to David's point: yeah. Do you think we've had that Pearl Harbor moment? Do you think actually there is the excruciating pain that then leads to banking execs to say, "Boys, we've already got to do this." So, so I think the pressure now comes from two fronts. Right, one is um, a desire to to reduce uh, costs, and, and more, more than reduce costs, to to, um, to channel spend which goes largely on maintenance into stuff that really delivers value to the end customer mm. and the other one is to improve the customer experience um to my mind where the real pain point will hit will be with sort of PST2 because um there's no way whatsoever that most legacy systems can cope with the customer's entire account history being queried two times a day right? so many systems will fall over so i think that is the uh, Pearl Harbor moment that's the crunch to be cynical i guess then actually given that the CMA 9 mm. the nine big banks and financial organizations mm. that are getting together to design and ratify those standards if with the banking and legacy systems that they've got now they're never going to agree to a new set of standards that can't mm. be delivered by the systems they've got today mm. well to address the initial question head on i think that the desire to want to replace something and the knowledge that that you have to replace it is a required but not sufficient right analysis of the situation the other piece that's required in order for it to happen is actually a system that's capable of doing what you require so those two things have to come together uh-huh. You can't deny the likes of Monzo now getting their 100,000 customers and getting mm-hmm. so much attention and mm-hmm. and those sorts of experiences you're going well our core isn't so close to the front end it's actually quite far away and so we need to somehow make our core get closer to the front end so we can do these you know um real time experiences that these guys are doing and we're getting two or three of them now starting to pop up this year who are really going to start making you turn your head and go we, we've got a <laughs> but it's it's all extrapolation at this point isn't it you know yes. any of the banks around yeah. here are going to go 100,000 customers like <laughs> yeah. that's great it is a rounding error, error. um so so it really depends on that executive on whether they can draw that line off to to see mm-hmm. radical change or not but I, but i think to your point though it's actually at some point most banking executives or internal teams within a, in a bank can look at any competitor and go yeah we could do that you know we could do that thing it would cost us a huge amount of money to get us there probably 
you know, a hundred times more than it would do a startup to actually deliver that thing. But I think we're very, getting very close to seeing challenges in the space that the incumbent organizations just can't copy. Uh, and that's going to be the interesting space because it's kind of at that point, do they have to? You know, is that the you wake up from the heart attack, not to elect to have the heart surgery? Moment? Uh, and I, I think that's a really good point. Since, since we're using so many analogies, I'm going to throw another one in here, which is um, like, I think it, it maybe, maybe. You know, have you listened to podcasts before, by the way? Like, <laughs> we live by now. Yeah, no, so, so I'm in safe ground here. But I just, I think the analogy might be if you heat water from one source, right, on a Bunsen burner, on a hob, whatever. You know, you start to see agitation in the water as it boils. Um, and you can quite clearly see the water is getting warmer, right? But if you heat water from all sides, like in a microwave, you see no agitation in the water before it explodes, right? I just wonder if, you know, if it's, as you said, right, the challenger banks, they have a model which is, uh, if I was a you know, high street bank, I'd be very worried, right? So you're seeing some very credible competitors coming in. You're seeing regulatory change and things like PST2. You're seeing tons of customer change and customers' expectations changing, liquid expectations, you know, what I get from Uber is what I expect from my bank and so on. So maybe it's this co like this confluence of all these different um, things which in themselves might not be sufficient to change core banking systems in aggregate, uh, forcing banks to, to change, you know, a bit like th there may be an explosion at 102 degrees that banks haven't quite anticipated because 100,000 customers here, you know, Apple Pay having 0.1% of of digital payments is kind of nothing but you know as these things all happen in parallel then so i'm the um you know i'm the bank ceo you're in my office and i'm starting to scratch my chin now thinking <laughs> mm, maybe these guys have something like what is the target architecture what does core banking need to look like in order to deliver these uh you know these next generation solutions well from a technological point of view i don't think it involves inventing anything new so there's no major new technology that needs to be invented to do that it just has to be best in class, and that's well established already. So I think the fundamental one is you've got to build on a SOA, which means you don't have to regress through your entire system as you do upgrades. It's got to be services-oriented, right? It's got to go through APIs. That also means you can open your architecture if you so please. But part of it is, again, the business modeling, I keep harping back to this, is architecting your, your, your data models correctly so you can share the data across and have OSVC, one single view of customer, because otherwise you're not relevant to the guy at the end. So, yeah, I think it's got to be um, open. So, for allow for to allow for open banking, um, it's got to allow for um, ninety nine point nine percent straight through processing. It's got to allow for any product or service to be originated on any channel. It's got to be running in the cloud. I think many banks would um, have reservations about that, but I think that you know that's inevitable. Um, and um, and you've got to split middle and front office because um, uh, you've got to have in order to like in an open banking world where your your product catalog includes other people's products and services um, that has to be separated from from your middle and back office that for that reason also because you're just going to see a huge growth in inquiries and interactions that don't necessarily result in transactions so i think you need to split those two things so that would be my checklist yeah and i think that, that i agree with all of those and i think that the one thing that i would add is i think the core has got to be generic um, and by that, I mean, it's got to have one pattern. And then from that one pattern, you can create a mortgage, you can create a loan, you can create a current yeah. account. What that means is that in short term, hey, they might just go, hey, we're going to focus on mortgages. But then long term, that platform gives you the ability to roll out the new patterns that you want for the next 20, 30 years. The other thing that I think is really important about the architecture, which is, you know, not a technical thing as such, but it's more of a, a description is 
I said it earlier, the core has got to be close to the experience. You know, um, something at Thought Machine is art and technology. We really believe in it. The technology and the art has got to be close to each other to start getting uh, banking experiences to really be what the other experiences, you know, like you said, are out there earlier. Is, is a major point here, though, that every bank has a tendency to think that they're pretty much a snowflake, right? You know, I think actually whenever you talk to anybody about these these things in terms of processes or construction of products or the way in which they go about uh, establishing these things, then they think their way is the, the unique way and the best way. And actually what we could arguably really do with is a lot of standardization across a lot of these mm-hmm. things. You know, I think mm-hmm. even, uh, even to the point of potentially mutualization of some of these elements across organizations to ensure that they're... Uh, you know, we talk about interoperability from a, a you know a distributed ledger perspective, but actually, you know, having real portability across uh, you know across banks with these things would be really really interesting from our perspective. Well, technology, what you're speaking about when you describe it is the principle of abstraction, right? It's 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 um, that's exactly what a services oriented architecture will mm-hmm. give you. That's what an API driven environment will do for you. It gives you modularization. It gives you also federation distribution. The ability to superimpose business models over, over, in other words, a credit union, one shared back office, multiple individual balance sheets on the front. Usually banks are single organs. So there's this whole thing is, what does your business model look like? What does a fintech operating in a bank environment look like? Why isn't there a quid pro quo? Why does it have to be an over-the-top play? We're going to take your lunch. Amazon Web Services, they built out a whole load of infrastructure to support their business and then invited in the the open market to come use that infrastructure. So doing, they pushed down their own cost of operations and actually turned their operating costs into a a source of profit, 12 billion, 15 billion per annum of profit, um, or revenue, sorry. Um, But, you know, significant profit margins as well. And also they were able to reduce the cost for everybody else. That sharing idea is is really quite Mm -hmm. powerful. But you need all of those service oriented architecture pieces to be in place Mm -hmm. before you can do any of Mm -hmm. that. And actually starting with something small and growing it is Mm -hmm. exactly what Amazon did. Mm -hmm. They did this in a few areas and then were able to to Mm -hmm. kind of grow it out. They did it in a few products and then were able to grow it out. And then eventually it became something that took over the whole business. And I guess that answers the question earlier on, right? How do you do this? Well, maybe a big digital core transformation is definitely not the answer to the approach that you would actually take to moving your bank forward. You know, you to your point, you start small, you kind of increase where you're going with it. You probably don't put the products that you've got on it. You probably don't put all the customers that you've got on it. But you sort of build it up in a way that actually answers a lot of the technological debt that you've built up over the last 150 years. So maybe you go from 1% done to 2% done <laughs> instead of 1% to 100%. And I think that the yeah. fact that everybody's trying yeah. to go from 1% to 100 is the issue here. Yeah, And I think there's another interesting phenomenon that will kick in. It just call it a prediction, but it's typical in platformification environments when they're turned on for the first time. What happens is there's a tipping point, right? The first one, two, or three of these transformations are arduous, right? They're journeys that have to be gone through. Once the model is established, they're very easy to observe, mm. which means following is very easy. Mm. So I think what you'll see is, you know, a slow life life curve of bacterium, let's say, right? <laughs> there's an incubation period, right? Followed by a period of ex- exponential growth. It's the question is, I think some of us in the room, all of us probably, the biggest challenge is how do we scale with that? We do seem to have almost come to 
the end of a product cycle in core banking. Yes. You know, it seemed to have been yes. at, one, at one point, everyone was selling the yes. whole package. You know, yes. I'm going to sell you everything you possibly need. Yes. Where it seems to have changed to very much more, well, the platforms that you guys are, are yes. describing in terms of yeah. open, flexible, agile, cloud-based. Um, how do you see the market progressing? You know, what does the next few years hold for, for core banking? Again, the plug-in architecture, open architecture platform is really, really important there because if a bank believes it can be the internal sole source of innovation indefinitely <laughs> going forward at the end of time, it's mistaken. And we all know that, right? So it didn't work. If you look at any models like walled garden scenarios that work, they just don't work, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to open your architecture. In order. Great ideas are going to come from unusual and interesting places. It's your ability to be able to incorporate those into your business in an intelligent and profitable way and not have the tail wagging the dog that is going to drive this business forward. Yeah, I mean, so um, normally every blog ever writes about how banks need to open up for the reasons that you say, right, which is um, in order to control, to continue to control distribution, they have to open up to third parties to, you know, mm-hmm. to, uh, to give customers a better experience, mm-hmm. more, more, um, more choice and so on. And our view, our view at Temelos is we have to eat our own dog food. So um, that's why we have a marketplace. That's why um, we've opened up. APIs so that we can offer other people's software directly to our customers. That's, so I think you'll see more and more um, core banking providers doing that. The other area, big area of investment for us is helping banks to make really good use of their data assets. Um, so, so we're investing lots of money in helping them to, um, to, to have the tools to be able to drop the, you know, the, offer up the right content, the right um, offers at the right time across the right device. And um, so I think they're the areas where you'll see um, you're seeing innovation in, in our market. Yeah, and I think on, on that particular side, you know, I've spoken a lot about propositions and everything else, but the other thing that I'm strangely passionate about is financial reporting. Mm. Um, and I'm amazed <laughs> that it takes 29 days, 45 days sometimes to get the thing that you need. And to your point, this closeness of the core to the data so that we can get that report on a CFO's phone and then out to the Bank of England timely which should be not far off real time quite mm-hmm. frankly is so important you know the important thing here is you're raising another point slightly there as well which is the value of data to banks right we haven't really spoken about that but what is it banks are sitting on perhaps the most valuable treasure trove of data on the planet far more qualitatively valuable than what google has but yet they're incapable of really leveraging it one reason is because as a single bank that data isn't very compelling but as a federated organism, this could be hugely compelling. And it's our responsibility, the builders of the bank in the future, to bring that to bear and let banks leverage those things as well. I think it's a very important point that we haven't covered today. So I think you guys have convinced me in my fantasy CEO scenario, sitting up in my boardroom. We obviously need to do a core banking systems transformation. And you guys are definitely the ones to help me with that. So maybe you can tell me a little bit more about your systems. Yeah, Leverus, we're available at leverus.com. It's a brand new service-oriented core bank, ultra-low cost digital offering with all of the attributes that we just mentioned. But again, completely developed from a clean sheet of paper. I would never say, because we've worked with some excellent legacy systems, part of this is what's a legacy system, what's a new new core, really. There's nothing wrong with legacy systems. In fact, if you architect on a legacy system correctly, there isn't anything you cannot build on it. But what you will face is it's more difficult to maintain and it's more difficult to 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 have rapid innovation cycles on it the more you put on it, mm-hmm. right? And that's why this change is so difficult to make because there isn't anything that your old system cannot do <laughs> if treated properly. So Leverus is essentially just a, um, it's a brand new core. 
everything is abstracted, it's fully modular, and it can be deployed in the cloud. So a lot of the things that we just mentioned are the things, precisely the things we're trying to build. In fact, anything that we thought of that we could bring to it, we tried to build it into the system. Ben? As a sponsor of the show, um, hopefully people already know who Temenos are, uh, market leader in core banking. And I guess we've been around since uh, 1993. And I guess we're, the longevity, longevity is the fact that um, we always spend uh, more than 20% of, of sales on R&D. And we're absolutely passionate about continuing to innovate in core banking. And I think it's the reason why I'm comfortable sitting at the table discussing core banking with uh, these two new entrants, because I think we have still have a system that's um, architecturally uh, right up there with the, the very best. Yeah, so um, Thought Machine, um, we've created a product for core banking called VoltOS. Um, if you just Google it, you'll, you'll find us. Very simply, we're obsessed about making the core generic. We've called it an operating system because it has a kernel, and the kernel makes things generic. We're convinced that that is very, very much future-proof. Um, and the other thing that we're obsessed with, which you may have kind of um, discovered through this show, is we believe that finance is creatively bankrupt and we need to solve that problem. It's one of the, f the last industries, apart from legal um, side, which actually really needs to have a revolution with the customer experience. Solve the core, you can solve that. Great. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. So thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Well, if it's a good one. And of course, check out www.11fs.co.uk if you want to know more about the team who bring you FinTech Insider every week. Until next week, speak to you soon. <laughs>